listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Um, God's commands to keep our doctrine and our, and our teachings pure and to be careful to handle the Word of God. And so, as we handle the Word of God today, I'd like to start in prayer. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your Word. Lord, as, as I was reminded this week in, in, in a lot of study, uh, more than I'm, I normally do uh, for a different reason to actually present, I found out again how deep and wonderful your word is. I also found out again in a very real way how sharp your word is. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword. And so as we look into your word today, I, I ask that we would, would, that several things would happen. Lord, I ask that you would remind us of your holiness of your might, of your justice, of the way that, that you work in your people, and the way that you are gracious and loving, and yet you are a judge. Lord, I also ask that as we look into your word today, that you would help us to heed the warnings. Lord, though right now we are blessed with unity in our church, Lord, help us to realize that in a very real way, any of us, because of our hearts, because of the way our hearts are, are seeking after our own gain so many times, and we're also, uh, our hearts, as pastors said many times, are idol factories, we very easily and quickly can become discontent. Help us, Father, to not be that way. Help us to, as we look at this message today, as we look at your word carefully, that we will see ourselves in the light of your judgment, in the light of your love, and that we would, um, would change in ways that we need to, that we would rejoice in the way you've caused us to grow, and that we would, would see you truly for who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to uh, start out by reading... Uh, to you from the book of Jude, just several verses. And I'm certainly not going to review all of Jude today. Pastor has been doing a wonderful job of, of looking at the book of Jude. But as I talked with him about presenting, I decided to take one of these, uh, one of those mentioned in here uh, from the Old Testament, whom God judged, and to take a look at them and to what, ha what happened in their, in their particular situation. Excuse me, situation. Um, in, in the first part of Jude, uh, Jude is, is warning or starting to warn, it, warn about certain people in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed and, and that they are doing things inside the church that are harmful to the church. And, and as he does that, he then moves into reminding the people of places like Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about a, a, a God who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and then destroyed the first generation that came out. He waited till they died. They were not allowed to enter into the promised land. He talks then about um, the, the, the man Cain who killed his brother, uh, rushing headlong into the air of, ba of Balaam and then perishing in the rebellion of Korah. 
And we, in fact, are going to look at um, Korah today. And so as we start today, I want to read uh, Jude, verses 8 through 13, just to kind of refresh us as to where we are. So if you want to turn to Jude, you can. Jude 8, verses 8 through 13. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. In giving examples of these situations, Jude is calling our attention to the things like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to Cain, to Balaam, and to Korah. He goes on to say that these people that have infiltrated the church in the time of Jude and, and have been all through time, all through the history of the church, that they are hidden reefs. And those of you who sail, and I, I'm not a sailor, but I've read numerous uh, books on uh, people, you know, stories and so forth about sailing, people who've been washed up on reefs, the idea of, of these dangerous uh, rocks lurking beneath the surface. We can't see them, but they're there. Clouds without water. Becky and I were noticing that with the weather system before the one we had yesterday and, and, and the day before, we just had these big, beautiful clouds in the sky the last couple of weeks. And clouds are beautiful. But if they don't provide rain when we need it, we don't, they're, they're not useful. Uh, these men are also carried by the wind. There's no spiritual mooring in their lives. Also, autumn trees without fruit. An autumn tree without fruit is pretty worthless. The Bible talks about in, in John how, the, how, the, how Jesus, or how the father would, the gardener would prune uh, the trees that did not bear fruit, and the ones that did not bear fruit, he would uproot and get rid of. And so, autumn trees without fruit show no evidence of life, and their roots are, in fact, out of the soil. And so, the last one mentioned was Korah. So we're going to take a look at Korah today, and so to do that, I would like you, first of all, to turn to Numbers chapter 16. Jude reminds these people of things they know. They knew the history of Jude. They knew the history of the children of Israel. Uh, many of them did. And one of the things that's very interesting about how God worked with the children of Israel was that he was constantly asking them to remember what he had done. And I think, I think we have to be careful to do that as well. What has God done for us? Um, if you look at the Jewish calendar, you will see a whole host of feasts. You will see days 
that God asks them to remember. He asks them to remember because he wants them to remember who he is and how he worked and his wonderful power and his majesty as both a savior, provider, and as a judge. And so uh, the Jewish people do a lot of things. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Right before the passage we're going to read in chapter 15 at the end, Moses instructs them to put a blue tassel or a tassel with a blue thread in it so they would remember the things that God had done, all the commandments of the Lord so that they would do them. And so we, we see that right in the, in the passage before this. But let's start reading today. The word of God is powerful and can, and can and expound on its own self very easily. Uh, so as we read a lot of scripture today, I hope you'll find that to be rich in God's message to us. So chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. It is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron... Who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. Is it not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you'd also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall bring his fire pan. 
that's where we'll stop for right now. The passage we're reading about is known as Korah's Rebellion. And rebellion is, is an interesting term. Rebellion can happen at many levels. I would have to say that there were times when I was a kid, and if my dad were here, he'd probably shake his head, that I was a bit rebellious. Now, I didn't go off and do all kinds of illegal things, but I was just kind of rebellious in the home at times. I questioned his authority. I would get upset. I would do things that, that I, you know, say things sometimes that I shouldn't say. So rebellion can be right here in our own heart, in our own attitude. Rebellion can be big. You can turn on the news just about every day and hear about some country somewhere where they're having some kind of a protest or sometimes even where we wake up in the morning and a country has a new government. Sometimes that happens. So rebellion can be on a political level and is usually open resistance to that government. We can also have a resistance to authority, which, when, which is where we resist the conventions or the rules or the things that we find ourselves in in a certain situation. Um, both apply here, you know, those, those definitions. This is rebellion on a political level because Moses, Moses was the leader. In a sense, he was the prime minister, the president. He was appointed by God to lead this people. He spoke the law for God. It's also the second one because they had a very, uh, very defined uh, religious system, which Aaron headed as the priest. And there were conventions, there were rules, there were things that had to be followed in order for them to approach God. And so there's, there's rebellion going on at both levels here, politically and religiously. And this is the way it was set up in the theocracy that Israel was at this time. I have to chuckle right now. Betsy told me that yesterday, she said, oh, that's right, you're, you're, you're speaking tomorrow. And I said, yeah. She said, if Lainey misbehaves, just from the pulpit, tell her to behave. So... I had a grandchild crying over there, but I won't tell her to behave. So, Now, we don't often see rebellion in our country. We see protests, uh, and by that I mean we can say that's rebellion, and it is, but we don't often see the big, large-scale type of rebellions that are going to overthrow our government. We see protests and, you know, times during the, some of you don't remember this, but during the Vietnam War, we saw forms of rebellion in our streets. We've seen rebellion in the 70s at political conventions and so on and so forth. But very seldom do we see rebellion that's, that's hugely open against the government. We do see small-scale rebellion, but it's not something we're really used to. So I'm just going to take a moment here to, to speak about some things that we might chuckle about. Um, how many of you have ever been in your workplace? You can just raise your hand on this one if you want. How many have been in the type of workplace where you have to go to meetings and sometimes go to a meeting with a group of people from another, another place uh, and you don't know everybody there? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Okay. What do they always make you do? They make you have these things called icebreakers. How many have ever been involved in an icebreaker? How many really liked it? People don't like those things. I don't know why in the world they bring them about. They just don't like them. And I'm, I'm chuckling because I remember as a teacher, 
lots of these things. You'd come into a room and they'd say, everybody take a card. And you'd take this card and pretty soon they'd have you up braying like a donkey or being a chicken or something like that to find your group or something like that, you know? And I'll be honest with you, I rebelled against those things openly. I couldn't stand those kinds of things. And I think, I think my, my fellow teachers did the same thing and pretty soon they started to kind of fade away because they weren't really doing what they should do. And I've never met anybody who liked them. I met people who pretended they liked them, but I don't think they really liked them. Another thing in the workplace, how many of you have ever been in a workplace, and, and you know, if you don't want to raise your hand, you don't have to, but how many of you have been in a workplace where someone in authority is in a little bit of trouble with the higher-ups? Ever had that happen? And have you ever seen how some people are really quickly to circle in the waters like sharks, hoping they can get rid of that guy, hoping they can get rid of that lady? That's a form of rebellion as well, and that's often seen in, in workplaces. We can go another route. We can talk about sports for just a second. You ever notice that one-star player who won't come to training camp? Or openly speaks in the newspaper about how he doesn't like the coach? Or those kinds of things? That's a form of rebellion that we, that we see often. And then sadly, we can probably all... We probably all know about a church that is split because of rebellion. That it, it happens. Sadly, it happens. And uh, so we, that's a horrible thing to have happen. It's not a good testimony to the world, and it's certainly not helping those people any. So we do see rebellion in, in, our, in our world. And so this idea of rebellion is not new nor is it ever going to go away as long as the heart of man is the way that it is. Let's go back to the text for a moment. What is, what is Korah doing here? Well, first of all, Korah was a Levite, meaning he was a descendant of Levi, just as Moses and Aaron were. He is jealous and resentful of Aaron's high status as the head of the priestly family. He resents and doubts the commands and the words of Moses. In fact, he even doubts if they're from God. At least that's what he's saying. Now, let's just take a moment here. If you were to turn to Numbers 4, and we won't do that right now, but Numbers 4 outlines the jobs of Kohath, who is the father of Korah. Korah is the son of Kohath. The Kohathites were assigned as Levites, to take care of the holy things, to carry them from the tabernacle as they went from place to place. So when they were going to move, when the whole camp would move, Aaron and his sons were the only ones who were to touch and to look at the holy things. They would pack them into whatever containers and types of things that these things were going to be carried in, covering them, not to be opened, and the Kohathites were to carry those. It appears that Korah thought this to be lowly work, servant's work, lowly and unimportant, and therefore resented Aaron's job of getting to do the special stuff, of getting to be that person responsible for those things that were truly important. 
And that's, that's the situation in, in Korah's heart. Now, Korah does what people often do. He spreads his dissent and his discontentment. Now, some commentators describe these 250 people as being representatives of the whole congregation. The verses, in a way, kind of suggest possibly that they might be Levites. I'm inclined to think it was probably representatives of the whole congregation just because of the number, but it's not totally clear. It's just that Moses says, you Levites. It could have been he was speaking to the Levites in that 250, or they all could have been Levites. I, I'm inclined to think it was the whole congregation, uh, representatives of the whole congregation. Verse 2 states that these men are men of renown. In other words, they are men who have been recognized by the congregation as leaders. They are men who uh, have responsibility, and they're known in the camp, which makes me think of a couple of things. First of all, Korah's been getting around, hasn't he? If they are representatives of the entire congregation, if you look at the way the camp was set up, you would have to go spe specifically to each tribe as they are set up around the tabernacle and talk to these people and get them to start thinking like you're thinking, spreading that dissension. He also gains the support of three Reubenites. Two seem to be brothers, Dathan and Abiram, and On. Now the Reubenites were in close proximity to the, tribe of, uh, to the people of Kohath, to Kohath's families and their tents. And so probably that may have been a nightly thing for them, go around the campfires and, and so forth, and, talk, and, and Korah would talk to these three Reubenites. And he got them to go along with this as well. Um, so why these Reubenites? Why the 250? Why did, why, did they, why did they join Korah? And this goes back to whatever we've already mentioned. Discontentment, you know, you can probably think in your life of a situation where you were not content about something and somebody provided a little bit of leadership for you and you became very discontent. That can happen in a family. That can happen with brothers, sisters say, well, mom and dad are not. You know, it can happen very quickly. In fact, discontentment is contagious and it often only needs a leader. Just like a, an ember from a fire needs only a breath of air to burst into flame. And so uh, this, this discontent spreads to the camp. Now, if you go back just a few chapters, you will find the people are grumbling against Moses. So maybe it wasn't very hard to get these people to step out against Moses. They've already been grumbling. And Korah saw this as a ripe time to, to bring about this rebellion. But he comes before Moses and Aaron with his group of 250 and says, you've gone far enough. Now this, this Hebrew uh, phrase might also be translate, translated, it is much for you. So there's two ideas here that, that I think we could look at as much for you. The first idea would be uh, basically saying, you know, not just uh, a nice little, oh, you've taken too much on yourself, but more of a, you think you are too important 
and you are not that important, stop lording it over us, that kind of thing. And probably would have been said in very strident tones, probably in a very uh, in in a demanding way. Now the second idea could be said in, you know, in a much softer way of maybe trying to be a little persuasive. You know, you guys have a lot to do. And you know, you wouldn't have to do all of it. You could share some of that responsibility with the rest of us. Now I tend to think it's the first. Given that the people were, were murmuring at Moses already, and given the fact that Korah has this jealousy and has this envy and covetousness in his heart, I would think that it would be the first one where he's being an, speaking more in a threatening tone and in a rebellious tone. Korah goes on to accuse Moses and Aaron of, of exalting themselves. Now, one of the things that I've wondered about in Scripture, I think we're given only the, a lot of times, the only the absolute things that we need to know to, for the story to flow. I think this, you know, we don't see everything that Korah spread. We don't know what other conversation might have occurred between Moses and Korah at this time. We get what was said. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Jonathan and David. And we know that Saul hated, hated David. And what's interesting about that is we only hear that, that David and, and Jonathan were great friends and that Saul hated David and that Saul was chasing David all over the place. But don't you think there was some things left out there that scripture did not need to tell us? But think about it for a moment. Dads, how many of you have ever warned your child about hanging around with somebody that you didn't want them to hang around with? Don't you think that Saul would have said, son, you quit hanging around with my enemy. Don't you think there was some strife occasionally between Jonathan and Saul? I would think there would have to be. And that's not recorded. And so my point is, is that we don't know everything that had happened before this. I am sure in a, in, a, in a camp this size and with people the way they are, somebody might have even come to Moses and said, I think Korah's got it in for you. So Moses may have known about this before it actually happened and, and, and been wondering if and when it was going to happen. Now, Korah goes on to suggest that the congregation is as holy as Moses and Aaron and just as fit to do the work done by these two men. I should draw a smile at least out of one person in the congregation tonight, today when I make this couple of this next observation. So, how many, how many of you remember saying to your siblings or your friends, you're not the boss of me? Anybody ever say that to their... To their sibling? Anybody ever say that to somebody on the playground? You're not the boss of me. I can just hear little kids saying that out in the playground or in a family. Uh, I remember as a kid when one of our siblings received new shoes or some other nice article of clothing, we would say just loud enough for mom and dad not to hear, they think they're big. You know, they got something. They think they're big. Barb, you're smiling. I knew you would. All right. Um, well, Korah, Korah and Moses, uh, Korah is doing the same thing here. He's saying Moses and Aaron think they're big. He's not happy with that. He resents their authority. He thinks they're not the boss of me. Now, in reality, Moses is not a man to exalt himself. In fact, he's a very humble man. Some people say he's the most humble man of his generation. 
You got to think about this. Moses wasn't sitting on a rock in the desert watching his sheep reading the desert times when he saw a want ad that said, wanted, leader to lead slaves out of Egypt, apply in person tomorrow barefoot at the burning bush. You know, that's not what happened. Moses was kind of told he was going to do this job. He had all kinds of reasons why he didn't want to do the job. And, you know, I think he was a humble person. who He never claimed to be the big boss. Likewise, Aaron didn't seek out and apply for his job either. So these two are doing what God asked them to do. They're doing to the best of their ability, most of the time, what God has asked them to do. Well, what was Moses' response? I like this. It says, responded by falling on his face. Now, I... I, uh, I do. I, I didn't find anything about this, but I wondered if that was, if there was, if this was a phrase that meant something else besides falling on your face. Um, falling on your face hurts. Okay, <laughs> it's it's very difficult to do. I mean, because I think it's. But I think what it is basically, he prostrated himself, he laid down. And uh, he showed his humility. Let's just put it that way. We know he showed his humility. And then he speaks to Korah and the 250. Notice his humility. Notice that he leaves this situation in the hands of God. And he instructs them about what they must do the next morning. And so we have the first test. We have the censor test. One of the things I think is really interesting is that he outlines with great accuracy the position of Korah. In verses 8 through 11, remember he says, aren't you Levites? Haven't you already been set aside by God to do this? And yet you want more? Do you even want the priesthood from Aaron? What is it? To, you know, he's pointing out to, to Korah the, the, the parts in his own heart where he's being covetous. And so Moses sees through Korah. Korah is not coming to him to, him to, re, to make the workload less. He's not coming to, to Moses with good theology and saying, you know, the camp's okay. They're all, they're all your people. They should be able to offer incense. They should be able to be priests. They should be able to govern themselves. But Moses sees through all of that. Now, Dathan and Abiram, for some reason, didn't come to this first part of the rebellion because they aren't in attendance because they are summoned by Moses. So they didn't come along. But I want you to check out the attitude of these guys, of Dathan and Abiram. They refused to come. So as we look at, at that, first of all, they refused to come. And one of the things I think is so interesting here, one of the promises made to the to the children of Israel in Egypt, is that God would bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at the audacity of these guys. Not only did they refuse to come, they throw back at Moses God's promise. They say, you brought us out of a land of, e a land of flowing with milk and honey. In other words, Egypt was a land of milk and honey. And then you promised us a land of milk and honey, and an inheritance of fields and vineyards, and you haven't delivered. You haven't delivered. And then they repeat, we won't come up. We won't come up. Now this is like a summons from the governor, or a summons from the president. 
and they're refusing to come up. That, that is a, a form of rebellion, and that is a form of, it's like when God gives us a direct command, we say, no, I won't do it. It's about that, that you know, Moses represents God in this, in this particular um, in this particular situation. So then Moses restates the conditions of the test for the next morning. So we have a night between number 16, verse, number 16, verse 17, and then we have the morning starting in verse 18. Now, one of the things I find kind of interesting, and, and, and I, I don't have, the Bible does not say this, but, I, but I'm, I'm going to make a point here. And I think, I think it's valid. God, through Moses, gave Korah and these 250 men a night to think about it. Is that a gracious God? He gave them a chance to repent. He gave them a chance to come back and say, hey, Moses, we were wrong. Please speak to God for us. Please intercede for us. But the rebellion in their hearts was such that that didn't happen. They did not repent. They did not come and say, and the thing is, do you remember a story a little while back where the sons of Eli tried to offer incense at the wrong time and what happened to them? They were consumed by fire. And yet these guys, knowing full well that that is the case, don't bother to think it through and say, God is a judge. God will deal with us if we do not obey. They instead remained rebellious. Let's read now Numbers 16, verses 18 and following. If you, can, if you still have your Bible open to that. So they each took the, his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, and that I may consume them instantly. God's ready to destroy them. But they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their face and said, O oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Notice that verb, spurned. 
As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Harsh and swift judgment came upon Dathan, Abiram, Korah, and these men. So the morning comes. And Korah and the 250 men are gathered at the tent of meeting with their fire pots ready. The text indicates that many more, perhaps the whole nation, has gathered for the test, and God's glory appears over the tabernacle to the people. God speaks to Moses and Aaron, instructing to move away so they may consume the entire congregation. Moses and Aaron prostrate themselves over the, over, I'm sorry, before God and plead for the people. Moses loved these people, even though... They were murmuring against him, and he prays for them. That's strong leadership, to pray for those who don't love you, to pray for those who are in rebellion against you, to pray for those who want your job, to pray for those who think only evil of you. At this point, the people are told by God through Moses to move away from the tents of Dathan, Abiram, and Korah. And then Moses goes to the tents of these men with the elders of Israel. The earth swallows up these men, establishing once and for all that Moses is the one who has God's given authority. The 250 censer bearers consumed by the fire of the Lord Established that Aaron's family is in fact the priestly family. The fact of the matter is none of this had to happen. These men could have, first of all, not rebelled. And secondly, they could have repented. The next part I find hard to believe. If you look at Numbers 16, 41 through 50... Look what happens the next day. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, against Moses and Aaron, not with them, against them. And they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Once again, get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. And again, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. Moses says to, said to Aaron, Take your censer and put, it in, in the fire, and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun." Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. 
But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who had died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting for the plague had been checked. I found this when I studied that part of this really surprising. Why would these people go and grumble against Moses and Aaron on the very next day? And really, what I, the only conclusion I could come to is that's, that's how man's heart is. How many times, and I'll use myself as an example, how many times has God spoken to me by his spirit and I see the truth of what he's saying and I return to the same thing? The same attitudes. The same actions. We find that in our hearts. Even though we are regenerate people, we still struggle with the flesh. And we return to that way of being even though we know the truth. Even though we've seen the truth. But you know what's really wonderful in this pat in that little passage there? We see someone being a mediator. We see Aaron moving between the living and the dead to bring about healing to bring about life. And we can look at a Savior that Aaron is being like. Jesus Christ has moved between the living and the dead. He has given us life. His death on the cross, His atoning work, His atoning sacrifice, His redemptive work brings us salvation and we have life, not death. So Aaron shows us a, a, a picture of what Christ would eventually do in that particular passage, in that part of the passage. Last, we have the rod test. No, Rod, you don't have to take a test. Um, the rod test is Moses has this rod, and, and uh, it's, he, he carries it as, and, you know, as, as part, of what, uh, part of his daily life. And uh, so... As you look at chapter 17, the Lord speaks to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get them from them a rod for each father's household. Twelve rods. So there were twelve sons of, of Jacob. Each, one, uh, each of those tribes had a leader. And Moses asked for their rod, for their staff. And so he gathers those. And then he says, You shall write each name on the rod. So he wrote a, a name on the rod for the tribe of Levi, or that would have been Aaron's. He wrote one for Judah, and, and at Reuben, and all the others. And write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout, Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece, for each leader according to their father's households. Twelve rods with a rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. Now on the next day Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. 
Moses then brought all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimonies be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me, so that they will not die. Thus Moses did, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near and who comes near in the tabernacle, nears the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? And so we finally see the people realizing their, their, uh, their problem, that they had acted in a very bad way. So, what was Korah's intent? And we'll, we're, we're finishing here now. To take away or reduce Moses' authority, that was one of the things they wanted to do, and they wanted to gain status among the Levites. They wanted to, at the very least, gain, regain some, gain some status and maybe even take over Aaron's job. Notice that, he uses a, that Korah use a, uses a populist meth message, or the way he does this, he says he spreads dissent. He thinks it's a lot of people figuring, if I get a lot of people talking against Moses and Aaron, then Moses and Aaron will see that we're serious and it's a real problem. If it's just me, he might not listen. And it worked. The proof is that he gained at least 252 followers. He used a little truth. Now, that's one thing we have to be careful of. People using a little truth. Just because they use a little truth and the rest is a lie, it's, the rest is still a lie. It's very important to think about. While it was true that the whole congregation might be holy, God had appointed a given way for his people to approach him. That way must be followed. So what were Korah's root problems? He was jealous and covetous. Remember, Timothy says, godliness with contentment brings great gain. Let's learn to be content. The other thing, he was unable to submit to authority. Authority is profitable for us, both in society and in the church. Authority protects us. God puts authorities over us to protect us, to keep us. The last thing is that he was also unhappy with God's way. Remember that God's way is best. Korah did not want to accept God's system for approaching God's holiness. He wanted to use his own way, to use his own people. Today, many spurn the cross and Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that Scripture has some very stern things to say about rebellion. One of the things is, is that you know, when Saul did not kill the Amalekites, and he took Agag as a hostage rather than killing him as a prisoner, we find Samuel's chilling words that said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Pretty serious words. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, we won't take time to read that, but it talks about in those verses that our hearts tend to go astray. And when our hearts tend to go astray, we tend to become rebellious. So, how do we keep ourselves from being rebellious? <clears throat> I think the first thing to think about is to think about obedience. We need to know and to obey God. We must know, therefore, what the scriptures teach us. You can't obey something that you don't know. So we need to cultivate in ourselves a spirit of obedience and submission to our God. 
<clears throat> Another thing, do not allow yourself to entertain false accusations about someone, particularly about those in authority. In 1 Timothy 5.18, it says that, and is speaking about the elders in the church, that we should not make false, entertain false accusations against them unless there are witnesses, and it is done in a proper way. Secondly, don't be idle. I'm sorry, thirdly, don't be idle. Be about your work. Now, we can say this in a couple different situations. I'm sure you're all in a workplace. Oh, and those of you who are older, maybe those of you younger haven't experienced this, but um, idle hands really bring about problems. And if people are sitting around in an office or sitting around in, at their jobs and have time to talk, and time to do that, you know, do things they're not supposed to do. That's oftentimes when those seeds of problems come; they start to grow. So be about your work. In the church, what does that mean? It means to be about the work that a church is about. We need to find ways to serve in the church, each of us. Then we won't have time to find fault. Exercise your gifts in the church. This is uh, something that, you know, each, each one of us through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us, if we are a child of His, we have the Spirit, and the Spirit gives gifts. We are all a joint, a building, jointly put together for Jesus Christ's service. And we are to exercise those gifts that the Spirit has given us. Now, how do we find those? I've heard of inventories that you can take that help you find your spiritual gifts. Well, I would suggest you just start to serve and you'll find the things that you're good at. I think that's the quickest way to go about it. You see something that needs to be done, do it. The other thing is, think about Korah. He wanted better. Why should I have to carry this parcel when Aaron gets to pack this parcel? He was mad about that. He didn't want to do his job. He wanted to do somebody else's job. You know, I think about some of the gifts and one of them is, is being hospitable. One of them is being an encourager. There's, there's gifts out there that are so crucial, and yet they don't seem like the big gifts. But you realize that cleaning the church is, being, is practicing the gift of encouragement and hospitality? It is. You're allowing people to come here in comfort and listen to the Word of God. They're not coming into a dirty building. Number four, serve others. Don't be critical of them. Number five, worry about souls, not self. Worry about souls, not self. How many of you were here last week and saw that quote that Pastor put up about Spurgeon, that Spurgeon had made? Did that hit anybody else between the eyes? Are we, the one that caught me in that phrase was, are we are we grabbing the knees of those who are perishing to keep them from falling into the pit? Are we doing that? I have to, that one hit me right. I used when I when I taught Sunday school a few years ago. I used to teach a lot more, but uh, some young people are doing a real great job with the young people right now. But um, I used to call them two by four moments. When God takes a two by four, basically, and hits me right between the eyes and says, "What are you doing?" Grabbing the knees of people so they're not falling into the pit. That's something I don't do. I'm not pleading with God for souls. Are you? 
You might be, and hallelujah, praise the Lord if you are. I don't tend to do that. I get caught up in what's going on in the world, in my world, my little teeny world. You know what? If I'm going to grab the knees of somebody, what do I have to do? Get down on mine. I can't grab knees from up here. I need to be in prayer. I need to be doing those things. And again, this is that point. I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm pointing a finger at me, but telling you what God told me this week about myself. I don't, I'm not about the work of the Lord as I should be in pleading for souls. I have to admit that I don't even plead for the souls of my grandchildren as often as I should, let alone my enemies. We need to think about that. We need to be biblical in solving conflict. Korah should have gone to Moses and Aaron alone or with another if he had a problem and if he was really serious about the issues that he brought up. Instead, he stirred up problems for the whole assembly. The Bible gives us specific ways. Go with a witness. Matthew 18 talks about going with witnesses and really establishing a sin if it's really there. And there needs to be witnesses. Finally, flee error and greed. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says to, to instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Well, I, I was... I know that pastor generally teaches about 40 to 45 minutes. And Caleb, I hope you weren't timing today. I'm well over that. I did not expect to go that long. And I don't see anyone asleep. Unless you're really good at faking. So let's just have a quick word of prayer here. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for myself, for this opportunity to being able to present your word. Lord, I thank you for the things that I learned this week about myself, about you. I ask that as we sing together now and as we go about our, our uh, rest of our time here together and as we um, go through this next week, that you would bring things that you have taught us today to our minds. Help us to uh, not be rebellious. Help us to realize that a sin, that sinning is even rebellious against an almighty God who is the ruler of the universe. We ask that you just work in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Chris and Barb.